talking about what I think everybody was paying attention to this morning, Health Canada approving the Pfizer vaccine. And later on today, we are going to find out some more details from the BC government on how the vaccine is going to roll out in this province. Well, we wanted to check in with Dr. Kathleen Ross, who is the president of Doctors of BC, to talk a little bit more about this. And Dr. Ross is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. I uh, wanted to ask first your response on hearing that Health Canada has gone ahead and we do have approval of the vaccine. I think this is really great news and uh, certainly a light at the end of the tunnel for many dealing with COVID. Uh, are there any concerns uh, that people will now kind of let their guard down or are taking this as such great news, uh, but thinking that the vaccine is here and uh, we maybe don't have to be as careful? No, I think people do need to continue to follow all the public health measures until we get that herd immunity where we have widespread vaccination and a control on the on the community transmission. And honestly, Jill, that's going to be many months away. Right, because even looking at the numbers and what we're hearing from the federal government uh, with the vaccines, uh, the, the first 249,000 doses being doled out to the provinces and in BC, uh, while we are waiting to get those details, we know it's going to go to the, the highest risk. Uh, what I was looking at uh, at the federal rollout looked like the general population would start uh, being vaccinated. Uh, I think it's uh, the, the best guess, so the best case scenario right now is in April. And I think that's what we're hearing on all fronts. Uh, I think that People just need to be be patient and and get those priority groups done first because that's where we're seeing the highest risk. Uh, how are healthcare workers doing? As far as this is good news and it does give us some hope and something to look forward to as far as a goal when those vaccinations start going out. Uh, how are healthcare workers doing in the meantime, uh, dealing with stress and with the well the stress of continuing to deal with the numbers and this virus. You know, Joe, it's an uphill battle for us, for sure, as we continue to see high numbers in the community. We are uh, seeing our hospitals get to the to the brink. We're seeing more and more of our workers burning out and, and having challenges, uh, right from the cleaners all the way up to the intensive care uh, physicians. We need the public to do their part to try and control this virus ahead of the vaccine. And do you think that message is getting out as far as we do have these restrictions in BC that have now been extended into January? Uh, do, do, are we getting the message out enough, do you think, about what it means to have ICUs at capacity or what it means when there are only, uh, a, 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 say, a small percentage of beds still available in the ICU? So I certainly hope so, but I, I respect that the public is getting COVID fatigue. I can assure you that as healthcare workers on the front line, we're also experiencing that same fatigue. But when we're so close to the end, we need to keep up the fight. And have have you or, or healthcare workers, any any other groups in healthcare that you know of, have you been given any idea on on how the vaccine rollout will be done for healthcare workers? We're certainly looking forward to Dr. Henry's news conference uh, today in in the hopes that we'll get a a bit more clarity. Uh, Frontline workers, including those doctors treating COVID-19 patients on the front line, uh, can be a priority, but the most vulnerable long-term care uh, patients and long-term care workers, uh, I think, should go first. Uh, do you think there might be a change in policy as well on, uh, and I know Dr. Hen- Dr. Henry has said many times that we don't have mandatory vaccines here and we're not going to change that, but what do you do in a scenario then when we're talking about long-term care or he- healthcare facilities if there are healthcare workers that don't want the vaccine? So I, I think that we have to recognize the risk of this disease far outweighs the risks associated with the vaccines and communicate that that safety uh, across to all of those that are being offered vaccine. We, we do need to have herd immunity to successfully conquer this virus. But do you think that could lead to policy changes as far as that not saying it has to be mandatory, but we were talking to an employment lawyer yesterday uh, who said, you know, employers can't force you to get this, but they could tell you you can't work on site or you can't work at a specific facility because of that. Do you think that there might be policy change then when we're dealing particularly with healthcare environments? You know, I think I'm not the right person to answer that question, but Dr. Henry was very clear that uh, mandatory vaccination is simply not a policy in Canada and and truly presenting the the evidence, the safety, quality effectiveness. Uh, you know, we, we need to encourage people that science uh, science can be trusted. 
How are we doing, do you think, in BC in that, like you said, I think a lot of people are feeling fatigue. Uh, people are, some people are upset that, that the holidays aren't going to look the same this year. But but I think, as you said, too, it's the bigger picture of what we're talking about and why uh, this is so important. Uh, how, do, how do you think we're doing as far as, as our continued fight against this virus and how we're doing as a province? I think the majority of, of people in British Columbia are stepping up, doing the right things, exercising all of those cautions. But there is a minority of people who are uh, who are flaunting the, the rules and, and putting the rest of us at risk. And and I guess it's still, it's getting that message out there and getting people to understand why you might think that you're exempt or, or that you're going, you having a small get-together is no big deal. But if everybody gets the virus, that is a big deal. No, I agree. And unfortunately, we're learning more and more about the potential long-term consequences of having a COVID vaccine. You might have a mild illness now, but there could be consequences later. So uh, it's, uh, it's a new virus. We're learning as we go. And I think the safest thing is to avoid getting it in the first place. All right. Dr. Ross, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and coming on the program again. Thanks for having me. Doctor. Bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Kathleen Ross is the president of Doctors of BC. Well, we now know that there have been some positive tests, the testing done at a mink farm in the Fraser Valley. This was the farm uh, where we knew several workers had tested positive for coronavirus. We now know the animals have tested, some of the animals have tested uh, positive as well. BC's chief veterinarian has placed that farm under quarantine as further investigation is being done. Let's bring in Victoria Schroff, who is an animal law lawyer. Victoria, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Yeah, sure, Jill. Uh, What are your thoughts on what we first saw as far as some of the workers testing positive and now some of the animals testing uh, positive as well? Well, I'm, I'm really saddened. I'll say that right at the outset. I mean, so we've got at least eight people and five minks um, that have now tested positive and that, you know, that, that just shows that there's an issue here that absolutely needs to be scrutinized more closely than it has been to date. Uh, and, and when you look at this as well, because I know you've been a big advocate for animals and fought for the, for the, the proper treatment of animals and, and again, being such an advocate, uh, do you think there's a bigger issue here as far as how mink farming is done and, and how the whole industry operates in this province? Well, I do. And I think we actually need to go back to sort of first principles here. And we have to say to ourselves, is mink farming considered to be cruel? And I'm not going to rely on just my opinion. Um, I have a quote from the Humane Society International, and they ask that exact question, is fur farming cruel? And they say, yes. Animals bred for their fur, such as foxes, rabbits, raccoons, dogs, and mink, are confined in small, barren wire cages for their entire lives unable to express their basic natural behaviors such as digging, roaming, large territories, and for a semi-aquatic animal, swimming and diving. These naturally active and curious animals have been shown to display the stereotypical behavior of mental distress, such as repeated pacing and circling around their ca- inside their cages. So that's a quote from the Humane Society International on mink specifically. And, I mean, I... I don't, I don't happen to be a fan of fur at all. I think it's like wearing a trophy on your back, as bad as a trophy hunter standing in front of their deceased animal that they've just killed with a grin on their face. It, it's absolutely, to me, abhorrent. Do you think that there would be then, uh, I mean, obviously there are, there are people that, that disagree with that, but would there be a compromise that could be found as, if the animals were treated differently? Uh, would there be a compromise there? Well, the, here's the problem is that these animals are purpose bred to be turned into fur coats and hats. So it's not like they have a life outside of being killed. They're kind of raised to be killed. Um, but that being said, I think that there has to be a transition period um, where the people, you know, I understand it's people's livelihoods and so forth. Um, but I think maybe if they could transition their business away from this sort of farming, it would be better. Because we do have, um, the law has um, the Health of Animals Act and the Fur Farm Regulation. So it's not like there are no laws that operate here. There are laws in place in B.C. We're actually quite fortunate to have these laws because not every province has um, the same protections. 
Um, so it's a question of implementing the fur farm protocols that they have under part three of the act. And, um, and I think that would probably go a long way if the health management plans were um, perhaps, I, I, I use the word scrutinized more. And I think uh, I understand that um, the fur farms were looked at earlier in the fall. And I think maybe they need to be looked at a lot more closely now. Uh, do you think that that might be something then that will come from this? Uh, because this case in BC obviously is the, is the one here, but we've also seen the culling of millions of mink in uh, Denmark. Uh, we've talked about that on the show before. There have been uh, issues with mink farms uh, elsewhere uh, also. Uh, do you think that might be, uh, I don't know if silver lining is the right word, but it might, it might lead to some change in how the industry moves forward? Well, I think that's a really good point, but also um, I think there's also a little bit of a difference between what's happened in Denmark and Netherlands and other places like that, and that is because um, our mink farms are spread out across a way bigger geographical area. Now, I understand we don't have the identity of this particular mink farm, but there are about, I'm told, around 10 mink farms in a particular Fraser Valley region. But it's not the same as Denmark, where there would be everything concentrated in one zone. Now, that being said, I've seen a statistic from 2018 that the SPCA put out, and they said that there were 260,000 mink killed for fur in B.C. So we're still talking about a large number of animals, but I don't believe we're facing the 17 million mink-type numbers that were called um, from Denmark after they discovered the mutated strain. Um, and, and this is the thing about the strain is that um, with mink, apparently it ping pongs very easily between people and humans. So this could pose a risk for the vaccine, um, at causing uh, further mutated strains. So, so it's it's about protecting the people and the animals who come into um, you know who are in this biosphere together, and um, improving our, our security standards, our biosecurity standards is probably something that should be done immediately. And it seems to be that that's a conversation that's now being had not only at mink farms, but also uh, whether it's poultry processing, other places where we've seen outbreaks of COVID-19 in people, in the workers, and then questions being raised about the working conditions. Absolutely. We're talking about this concept now in animal law. When I teach um, animal law to my students at university and in my public lectures, I talk about this concept called one health. And one health means that humans animals that planet we're all interrelated and um there's a reason why we've seen that now with covid so we're in a different world than we once were and i understand that was some of the wording that pamela anderson the um movie star used when she wrote to our premier john horgan to ask for a complete closure of mink farms and she was saying we're in a different world and 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 that's that's very, very true. We're, we're not in the same world we were even a year ago, where we thought of animals as separate entities. No, no, we're all really related in a way that affects our health directly and indirectly. All right, Victoria Schroff, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this. Thanks. Happy to happy to come on anytime, Jill. All right. That is Victoria Schroff. She is an animal law lawyer uh, checking in with Victoria today after uh, news reported earlier today that the minks have now been uh, testing positive. Five mink samples taken from a Fraser Valley mink farm all con- uh, confirmed positive for SARS uh, coronavirus uh, that causes COVID-19 in humans. This happening after several workers on that same farm tested positive for COVID-19. Well, as you've likely heard, Vancouver City Council has passed its budget. We've been focusing a lot on this budget and the reaction from the police department in Vancouver. The chief of the Vancouver Police Department saying that he is disappointed that the 2021 budget does not include more funding for police. He said he was disappointed with the budget vote at council. That was a release issued earlier today and also on the Mike Smith show as well, saying that while elected officials Officials have tried to position this as a status quo budget by holding the VPD at 2020 levels. That is simply not the case. That is one of the main concerns that has been brought forward about uh, the budget. However, there have also been issues raised about the $1.6 billion operating budget. So it's going to see property taxes increase at 5%. And the mayor said there will be more money for things like street cleaning, community policing, battling the overdose crisis.
crisis and helping small businesses weather the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, my next guest has been watching closely the budget process. Paul Sullivan is a volunteer with the group Step Up, also a property tax appraisal expert and managing partner with BC, uh, BCS Real Estate. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, what are your concerns with the budget? Well, I mean, I, this clearly is not a year that we should be talking about a 5% increase. I know they've voted it through, but uh, nobody's getting a 5% raise. Uh, everybody's suffering with higher costs, uh, more taxes from all levels of government. And, you know, this is just another load on. I mean, we got a 7.5% increase last year, 5% the year before, 4.9%, 5%, 4%. You know, we're at a point where our annual property tax budget increase is around $33 million per year, which on a five-year average is increased significantly. They were performing more in the $25 million per year in the five years previous to that. So these are not sustainable levels. We cannot expect the taxpayers to continue to pay for the types of things that the city would like to pay for. The property tax system simply was not built to deal with the political social issues that this council is trying to push. Do you feel like we're sometimes told or Vancouver residents are, are given a number of 12% or 17% to make us feel better when it's only five or when we're told it's only five? Hey, it, it happens every year and it's a political game and it is meant to make you feel good and it doesn't. What the government needs to be doing, and I'm talking about municipal government, is focusing on their core services. Under provincial law, they are meant to have five main service categories, fire and police, planning and development, engineering, parks and recreation, and general government costs. How can you cut or not provide funding to police if you don't even measure it? Do you know that in the city of Vancouver, the cost per capita for police is one of the lowest of all surrounding municipalities? No, they don't know. So how do they know whether they're getting value for services and that's the department that should be cut? Do they know that planning and development is double the cost per capita in the city of Vancouver to all surrounding municipalities? No, because they don't measure it. So how do we as taxpayers have confidence that we're getting value for services, which they keep putting the cost up on when they don't even measure and compare themselves to their competitors? or surrounding indices. Uh, there's been a lot of talk as well about uh, jurisdiction and some of the issues that City Council deals with uh, that uh, many would argue don't fall under city jurisdiction, uh, one of them being uh, the climate plan. And it's unfortunate that it, that it can be divisive in that if you question it, uh, some people will suggest you don't care about the climate, which isn't really true. It's that perhaps a c- Vancouver City Council and with their climate plan uh, is not going to have this huge impact, but what it is going to do is cost taxpayers a whole lot of money. That's right. And, and, and we all want a healthier planet. We all want affordable housing. But the property tax regime is not designed to pay for these things. That is too altruistic. They have to service the five main service categories that are set out in legislation. And when they start to spend money on other things and then start cutting back police and fire and safety, that's not okay with the taxpayer. We have properties that need to be protected. The, 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 the job of the bureaucrats, if they want to get these additional agendas on the table, they must go get that money from upper levels of government. It cannot come from property tax. It's not designed to fund those things. And what about issues when the mayor is asked uh, these types of questions? He often says, uh, because we'll compare it to other cities as well that uh, have property tax increases that are far less than Vancouver. Uh, his argument is often, well, they're not dealing with the downtown east side. They're not dealing with the homelessness problem. They're not dealing with a lot of the issues that we are dealing with here in Vancouver. Well, and, and fair enough. I mean, I think that's the core to the problem that, you know, that, that they need to be better funded by higher levels of government. And, and because we know that across Canada, people are arriving to Vancouver and, and, and living on our streets and, and having a terrible opo- opioid crisis because Vancouver, somebody's paying for them and, take, and, 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 and it's the place to be. It's, it's warmer. It, it, it's, it's a terrible situation 
but it's not one that can be solved through property tax. The upper levels of government must be responsible for all these people coming to, to Vancouver. We're not doing a good job of it. We are losing five people a day in the streets of the city of Vancouver. It's disgraceful. So putting a million dollars a day into that downtown east side situation and having five people pass away a day, unacceptable. That needs to change. And it's not the job of the property taxpayer in the city of Vancouver to fund the solution. Right. I mean, it does come down to, as we know, it's all one taxpayer. Uh, We are going to be part of the solution, paying it through some level of taxation. But uh, I think people would tend to agree that level of taxation, uh, probably the the, the best place is not property taxes in one particular city. Yeah. And, and, And I think we'd be negligent not to talk about the commercial taxpayer. Right now in the city of Vancouver, 42% of the taxes are paid by 7% of the properties, being the remaining commercial properties in Vancouver. In the past five years in Vancouver, we've added 12,500 new residential properties. In the past five years, we've added 55 commercial properties. So you can imagine when we have a $300 million increase in the property tax budget And we're trying to spread that over 50 commercial properties and 12,000 residential properties. This is a situation that's much easier for the residential tax base to absorb, but it's crippling our commercial taxpayer and and our small business. And that problem's not been addressed. It hasn't been solved. And uh, when you're asking for 7% of the properties to pay for 42% of the load and you keep increasing it 5 to 7% a year, God help our commercial taxpayers. You're going to have no restaurants left in this city in no time. Whatever happened, though, because this was addressed, or at least there was an attempt to address it, and one of the policies of the best use taxation, where businesses were being taxed far more based on what could be in that particular space, not based on what is in that space. I thought that was changed, at least in one sense, to try and help businesses. Um, I led a major litigation case called Amicon that resulted in a select number of properties that benefited from it. Unfortunately, it was not widespread. Um, City of Vancouver did go to the province and and ask for a legislative change to fix the problem. The province declined to do it. They've done nothing about it. This NDP has given nothing but lip service to the small business taxpayer. Now I hear our mayor wants to fund small businesses. Well, he hasn't done anything about the problem either. He has tools in his toolbox, including revitalization tax exemptions to help small business. He's done nothing. So there's a lot of lip service coming from all levels of government for small business. There has been no concessions for the small business taxpayer. What would you like to see done then? If there could be any changes made, what do you think would be the most beneficial or would help out in this scenario? Well, I'm a business owner and a property owner in Vancouver. So what's important to me, first off, is is getting the budget under control and starting to measure the delivery of services to ensure that taxpayers are getting value for money. And you only do that by measuring it and comparing it to your surrounding jurisdictions, finding out where you can save money. So that's got to happen first because it's the total budget that's that's hurting everybody. Then on the commercial side, we need to bring some closer alignment to the, 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 the services consumed by the commercial taxpayer versus what they're paying. They're paying $2 for every dollar of services consumed. That's the problem. So we need to fix that consumption of services problem relative to how much we're charging them. And if we do that by just the, the, the Amicon approach, which is charge certain types of properties less, because they're valued it under this highest and best use model. Let's do that. And the decision we achieved is a good one. It's called split assessments. That unbuilt residential density should get a residential tax rate, not a commercial tax rate. It provides tax relief, but you know what happens then? The NDP's new taxes get laid onto that. Additional school tax, speculation tax. So there's so many new taxes with so many unintended consequences This government has done more damage and there's been nothing brought to the table to support small business. All right, Paul, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time and for talking about this. Thank you, Jill. Have a good day. You too.
That is Paul Sullivan. He is a volunteer with the group Step Up, but also a property tax appraisal expert, managing partner at BCS Real Estate. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, the downtown east side Vancouver Street Store is going ahead. It's an outdoor holiday shopping event. It is geared to people who are experiencing homelessness so they can take part in this. There was some concern because of the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions that the event might have to be cancelled, but the good news is it is going ahead. And Joining me to talk a little bit more about what it's going to look like is Christina Wong, who is the executive director of Employ to Empower. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Joe. Thanks for the warm introduction. I'm excited to be here with you as well. Well, I know there was some concern about this because we've seen so many other events had to have to cancel or change so dramatically. Uh, so will there be any changes or are things going ahead as planned? So we've been really working hard to advocate for this event over the past couple of weeks. And yes, it is going ahead. It has been exempt from the provincial health authorities on the basis of kind of providing essential items and services to people in need. And it's nice because I think the province recognizes how important this is, that this event is for the community and that the need is even more heightened this year. So we are moving forward and we are going to make sure that the COVID regulations are in place so that it's a safe experience. So this is the the seventh annual uh, Vancouver Street Store. Uh, Talk a little bit about what what actually is it. Describe it to people maybe that aren't familiar with this idea. Sure. So the concept of the street store actually began in Cape Town, South Africa, and I started the Vancouver chapter in 2014. So with some context, the street store is a free pop-up outdoor clothing store for people experiencing homelessness. And we set it up like a a real retail experience where it has male and female clothing, toiletries, shoes and accessories, haircuts, food. And the core concept is for people to choose what they want and need at no cost. So a dignified shopping experience. And over the years, we've been humbled to have over 50,000 donations and 500 volunteers. And it's actually through the Street Store event that brought the inception of Employed Empower, which is a charity that supports entrepreneurs in the downtown east side. And how were donations this year, given that everything's a little different this year? You know, we, we Vancouver sure knows how to show up, Joe. Let me tell you that. <laughs> last last. I think the past two weeks, we we actually have received so much in-kind support from the community. We have about, uh, I think one person dropped off 100 bags just last week. So we uh, we have 250 bags of donations, and I think we've received enough um, for the event to take place. I think right now what we're needing some help with is funds to kind of purchase the personal protective equipment like masks, Mm. face shields, as well as the operations of the event. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now. And, and that uh, leads uh, my next question. I was wondering, because I know it's a volunteer-driven event, did enough people or do you have enough people volunteering to, to make this happen? Great question. So we actually did do have enough volunteers for this event. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking for something to do for Christmas, considering how a lot of other volunteer um, opportunities are cancelled. And so we, we do have enough volunteers for the day of. However, we do have one last donation drop-off tomorrow, Thursday, December the 10th, um, at Coastal Church. And we're so grateful they're letting us use their space to kind of um, collect donations. We are only accepting um, high-priority items, considering that there's been, you know, a 60% homelessness increase since last year. Backpacks, blankets, um, socks, unused toiletries, underwear that's unused um, are, are more high in demand than ever. So um, that's kind of uh, two ways people can support either coming to drop off tomorrow, anytime between 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Coastal Church by Commercial, or they could also donate online at Canada Helps and people will receive a donation tax receipt right away. All right. So those are the things that you need. If somebody does want to donate to tomorrow, those kind of high priority items. Uh, what other things do people, when people come and shop at the experience, uh, what, mm-hmm. what other types of things are, are kind of big hits or, or things that are, that are in high demand? Do uh, you mean when people, the guests come into the store? Yeah. I would say the items that I listed, and actually for many years, we kept running out of men's clothing because 75% of the downtown east side population is actually comprised of men. And so usually people come in, people go straight for the men's tent. But this year, we, for the first time in six years, like we actually have enough men's clothing and women's clothing. It's basically, we filled the storage, the storage area to its brim. Um, and uh, I would say the blankets and backpacks almost always run out as well as unused undergarments, um, unused toiletries, like shampoos, soaps. And uh, this year we're also accepting donations for face shields and hand sanitizers because we want to make it COVID-friendly for the guests. 
Right. And you mentioned, too, uh, the cost of uh, the, the PPE uh, for volunteers and such as well. Has that been more of a challenge, making sure that when this d- event takes place uh, this coming Saturday on d- December 12th, that everybody is uh, following the COVID rules and staying safe? Um, I think with with our ongoing kind of communications with the Coastal Health, like we've, we've kind of come up with a plan that is going to be the most safe for the volunteers as well as the guests. I think in terms of securing the PPE gear has been a bit harder (laughs) than we expected just because you want to be able to give people the masks and the face shields, kind of give people um, an option if they absolutely cannot wear a mask inside. Um, So that's something that has been a challenge, securing personal protective equipment so that we can kind of give the volunteers and the guests a safe experience. And how do you see things playing out on the 12th as far as, I know it goes from 10 to 4, I would imagine there'll have to be some kind of a limitation on the number of people at one time and things that maybe we haven't thought about in previous years. Great question. So we thought this out with our um, beautiful volunteer team. So the capacity is has to be a maximum of 50 people at a time. And also the event is outdoors. So um, it's it's been it's been it's across from Save on Meats, like the 58 West Hastings lot, and basically we're going to be having limited people inside. Uh, we'll have safety two meter apart tapes on the on the lineup, so people aren't kind of overcrowding. We'll have additional people to kind of support with lineup management, and also having multiple sanitation uh, stations so that people can, you know, make sure that they're uh, they're safe during the experience. Well, it sounds like uh, everything has been carefully planned out. Uh, and like you said, uh, I, I mean, uh, the fortunate thing is the event is still going ahead. ahead. I guess, unfortunately, there, there seems to be a much bigger need uh, for it this year. Uh, I wanted to just ask you quickly about the group, as you mentioned, uh, Employee to Empower, uh, helping people uh, with, with access to things like entrepreneurial resources. Has there also been an, an increase in that or how has that been impacted by uh, the pandemic? That's a good question. So I know that there is a couple surveys that were done in the community indicating that, you know, actually 23% of the population are self-employed. And when I say self-employed, people are artists, service um, pro- service providers, craftsmen and women. And, you know, I would say that it has impacted the, the physical capabilities of entrepreneurs in our program because most people go out on the streets to sell to, to make income or a side revenue. So with the pandemic in place, like people have been limited in, in their ability to go out and talk to people and sell their work. So a part of what Employed Empower does is just to be able to coach people onto getting online so that they can still have that revenue stream um, of their product and their service um, that way so that they're not completely limited by the pandemic. There's been a lot of resilience in our program members. I've been, you know, they've kept me strong. They've kept the team strong. Um, the arts, we have a lot of artists in our program and um one of our artists, Deirdre, uh, she, you know, she always jokes and says COVID-19 doesn't have nothing on her because she continues to create art in the community to spread the love um, so that people are staying kind and calm during this time. All right. Well, again, so happy that the event is able to go ahead. Just to reiterate for people, if they're curious, so if they want to donate to those high priority items that you mentioned, uh, that's uh, tomorrow. They can donate at the Coastal Church? Yes, from 10 to 1 p.m. 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And then if uh, if they're unable to donate those items, uh, I strongly recommend uh, to donate on Canada Helps. Uh, they they do give a donation tax receipt immediately upon the donation. Oh. And um, it, it would really be helpful. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for joining us uh, to bring us up to date on this. Yeah, no, thank you for having me and giving me this platform to share this um, really worthwhile initiative. Our team is just off the wall um, (laughs) because we've been really pushing for this. We had a volunteer joke to make a joke that made us all laugh and said, you know, we should print out this email email thread, the approval from the approval from the provincial health authorities and uh, just just bring it with us to the event tattooed on our forehead. (laughs) (laughs) There's an idea. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Christina, again, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks, Jill. Take care. You too. That is Christina Wong, Executive Director of Employ to Empower. And again, the downtown east side Vancouver Street store will be going ahead Saturday, December 12th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that's in the lot right across from Save on Meats. That's at 58 West Hastings Street. Well, we know Christmas is looking a little, perhaps a lot different for people this year. But that doesn't stop us from talking about what books are the top of the list, perhaps the most popular for the holiday season. They always make a great gift. Well, 
given that the recipient is somebody that likes to read. So we wanted to check in with an expert to see, well, exactly that. What is the hot book and books this year? Marianne Yazedjian is the manager of Book Warehouse and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, I know it's probably been a different year for Book Warehouse as well, <laughs> with uh, businesses shutting down at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, now having uh, capacity numbers and such mm-hmm. of people that can be in the store, more people going online. Uh, how has it been for book sales? It's been, it's actually been great. Um, yeah, I mean, like you said, it's just been the strangest possible last 10 months that any of us ever could have imagined working in retail. Um, but we found right from the beginning of the pandemic, when we did shut down for a while, people really came out to support local independent stores. And our customers have been absolutely fantastic in supporting us. They immediately went onto our website, figured out how to order online with us. We made sure it was as smooth as possible. And yeah, we did curbside pickup for a couple of months. And then all of our stores uh, reopened in early summer. Uh, great that uh, that's another example of how people were able to figure it out. And probably uh, there were some cases or many cases where people uh, had maybe a bit more time to do some reading and suddenly found themselves they needed to get some new books. Yes, very much so. We saw it right at the beginning of the pandemic. People were, every book order that came in was for mystery series or for sort of escapist fiction. I was expecting a lot of self-help and psychology and care books, but it really wasn't like that at all. People really needed just something great to escape into. Yeah, I can say maybe the self-help and, and those uh, come January, that might be yes. when, although we've got the, the bright light of the, the vaccine on the horizon. Uh, yes. Let's talk about the, what, so what books, you kind of touched on it there, That's you're seeing that, that type of book get quite popular. Uh, tell us some ideas then of what you think are the, the great books right now. What are people reading? Well, a few of our absolute favorites here, which I've pulled out um, that I wanted to talk about. One of the books that is our favorite across all of our stores is Valerie Perrin's Freshwater for Flowers. She is a French author. This is her first book in translation, and it's just one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. It, it, I read it in the summer, and it stayed with me all this time, and I still think about it, and I still talk about it with any customer who reads it. It's the story of uh, Violette. She's a cemetery caretaker in a small French town. She believes in happiness despite everything. And I'm so sorry. There's construction going on around the back of my building, and I hope that's not too loud. That's okay. (laughs) Um, Sorry about that. Um, It's just a beautiful book. It's heartwarming, tender. Um, It's just one of our favorite books of all time. Interesting when you said it's her first book, too, uh, that's uh, been uh, translated. Uh, Do you find people are often wary of that, uh, fearful that if a book was, say, written in French, that it might lose something in the translation? I I do think so, yes. People can be a bit wary about that, but you've just got just got to believe that like some translators out there are just so fantastic you're going to get the original authentic feel of the book all right what else are people reading um another one of our favorites if you're into a psychological thriller mystery is ruth Ware's one by one she's written quite a few books the woman in cabin 10 the turn of the key this is her latest and it's very agatha christie-esque a bunch of people stuck in a in the snow in a uh, chateau in the Alps where uh, people are getting killed off one by one. Huh. <laughs> Sounds like a very uplifting, <laughs> uplifting so, read. <laughs> yeah, it's so good to just lose yourself in because, of course, it's completely unrealistic. It's never going to happen to any of us, but it's just so much fun to read. <laughs> and do you find that people, like you said, the, the kind of the sci-fi, the, the escape books that people are getting into, um, not that books and television are at all the same, but I've been having this conversation. when I, If I turn on TV thinking I'm going to watch a program and think, okay, I'm going to escape for an hour, if the show has worked the pandemic into the plot, I turn it off because I can't. Yeah. I, I deal with that all day yeah. now. I can't. I don't want to turn on my TV and, and watch people doing that as well. Do you think there's there's something in that in books as well that we don't want to be reading about pandemics or about health crises, that kind of thing? I think so, yes. I mean, you know, early on in the pandemic, one of the most popular books was uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's book, Soap and Water and Common Sense. That yes. was originally written 10 years ago uh, dealing with the SARS pandemic. It was updated for this. So people are interested in reading a bit about the nonfiction of it, like just about how you can protect yourself and be careful. But no, I don't think anybody's particularly interested in reading about a fictional plague right now. <laughs> Very true. The soap and water book, I think, would be uh, might be top of, of the list for, for giving as a gift if people can get their hands on a copy. Yes. Yeah, we definitely have copies in our stores. 
All right, that is good to yeah. know. Uh, what about nonfiction? What are people reading in nonfiction? It's uh, keeping on with the tradition every year in that nonfiction around Christmas, people really start loving uh, celebrity autobiographies, particularly music and uh, and actor biographies. So a couple ones that have been really great recently, uh, Jan Arden's latest, mm-hmm. If I Knew Then, which is just I mean, I love Jan Arden so much. She's just so honest and forthright about everything. And this is her story of, you know, becoming a woman of a certain age and how she's dealing with it. I I just finished reading, I'm always a little bit behind. I just finished reading her book about remembering her mother. And I mean, Mm -hmm. it had me crying. It had me laughing. It was so beautifully written that uh, if I knew knew then is on my list as well. So I'm, I'm glad to hear I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's so relatable. She really, really is. Uh, What about Barack Obama's book? It is the hot seller of Christmas. Yeah, it is. I I honestly haven't even had a chance to look at it myself because we get it in, we sell it out, we get it in, we sell it out. It's just, it's been the hottest book. And uh, I know that uh, you mentioned celebrities as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alan Doyle, I think, has a book out. Mm -hmm. That one resonated with me because before the pandemic, that was the last concert I went to without realizing that that was going to be the last concert I was going to be at in a while. Uh, But but it sounds like people are are drawn to that and and kind of getting that behind the scenes look of, of musicians and celebrities as well. Yes, very much so. Yeah, that one's also been very popular. Um, Michael J. Fox has a new memoir out, also very popular. Yeah. Uh, do, do you see sales going up as far as people purchasing books? Are, are they still considered, even with all the different ways to read now, are they still the, the, the actual in-your-hand paper book? Is it still popular and, and a gift idea? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We find that our customers, even the ones who do read sometimes on ebooks, they really want a paper book most of the time, especially because most of us are staring at computers all day at work. You don't want to stare at a screen later when you get home. You want to actually look at, at text on a page. And as far as a gift goes, like there's just nothing nicer than getting a, you know, perfectly wrapped, lovely new book. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that, that so many people uh, enjoy. How do you get people, if, if people are kind of feeling like they're in a rut, they only read one type of book, maybe they only like thrillers, mm-hmm. or they only like, they think, oh, I only like nonfiction, I don't like fiction. How do you try and get people to branch out? Um, well, we're really good at recommending books. Like everybody who works in our stores is a really big reader. So we're really good about like, sort of picking out from a customer like what they could be into and suggesting new things. In all of our stores as well, we always have sections that are books we love and we just... Okay. ...for a little bit and pick out, you know, something that they wouldn't normally pick up. Right. And, and I find too, if I, I, I might be strange in this, if I read a book that I love, I'm, I, on the one hand, I want to pick up everything by that author. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why I haven't read Jan Arden's newest book yet. Because on the other hand, I'm also worried that anything else that the author has written, if, I, I might not love it as much and it's going to ruin it for me. I know. I know. I, it, like you say, on the one hand, it's so great to find a new author that you love and then know that you have so many books to look forward to reading. <laughs> but yeah, you never want... You know, often the first book of that author that you read is going to be your favorite. And then, yeah, it can be disappointing. But, I mean, to that, one of the other books I was going to recommend uh, is Ready Player Two by Ernest Klein. Ready Player One came out quite a few years ago, was insanely popular. They made that movie about it. It still sells like crazy. And then the sequel just came out. And I was thinking, oh, what, how could he possibly top that? That book was so great. Well, he did it. It was fantastic. It was just such a fun frolicking, crazy ride. So give, give the author a chance on the next book. All right. Uh, any other suggestions uh, that you wanted to make uh, before uh, we, uh, we got a couple minutes left, but any other ones or any other age groups you wanted to put out there? Uh, there was some, yeah, so a local nonfiction that's one of our favorites here, which is Vancouver Exposed by Eve Lazarus. Mm. This is, yeah, Searching for the City's Secret History, where, yeah, she basically peels back the layers of Vancouver's history and reveals surprising hidden depths like buried houses nudist camps it's funny it's intelligent it's just one of the best books for anybody who loves vancouver history or any history at all really great i've read some of her stuff she's great Mm -hmm. yes all right any others before we call it a day um (laughs) i mean there's just so much i really do encourage people to go onto our website and you can browse through everything that we have in store everything that's available to order um see what see what's there. Um, Yeah, a couple of other recent ones that I've really loved. Nick Hornby has a new book out, Just Like You, which 
you know, he's such a, a feel-good author that that one's fantastic. Um, David Sedaris has a recent book out, The Best of Me, which it's more of a compilation of his previous writings, but if you love David Sedaris, it's excellent. All right. And uh, for people then, uh, as far as uh, you mentioned, you can go on the website. Uh, mm-hmm. You're still doing curbside pickup, doing in-store as well. So lots yeah. of different ways to safely get to our books this year. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. We're all being really careful in all of our stores. We do have limits on the number of people who come come in. You know, we do require a mask and hand sanitizing. But yeah, we're happy to have people come in and we're happy to pick out Christmas books. All right. Well, Marianne, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time and happy reading. Thank you so much. You too. That is Mary, excuse me, Marianne Yazedjan, the manager at Book Warehouse. So the other day, I went for a walk to check out the Christmas lights in a different neighborhood, and I realized as I was out, I didn't have a mask with me. And that was fine, because I wasn't planning on going anywhere, but I thought to myself, well, I hope I don't need to go anywhere, because I don't have the mask. I'm walking by myself, but if I have to go into a store, well, I can't. I can't do that. We just heard from the mayor of Calgary as well. He walked into a restaurant, realized he didn't have a mask, got about a foot in, and was told, hey, you're the mayor. You should know better. Well, if you are out running errands and maybe you have forgotten something like your hand sanitizer or the needed face mask, you might be in luck because a local entrepreneur has launched a new business. We knew this was going to happen, didn't we? It provides quick and easy access to personal protective equipment. And for more on this, let's bring in our show contributor, John Jang. Good afternoon, Jill. Now, chances are most of us have dealt with vending machines before. I mean, come on, it's so easy. You can grab a soda, you can grab chips, candy, chocolate bars, all that good stuff. Maybe you've done it like a thousand times already in your life. Now, we don't necessarily think of vending machines as our go-to destination when we need hand sanitizers, face masks, or even face shields. But therein lies the opportunity that Edvin Muminovich has seized for himself. He is an entrepreneur and now the owner of a PPE vending machine that you can find at the Waterfront Skytrain station, and he's also on the line with us now. Edvin, uh, first of all, what inspired you to create this brand new vending machine? Well, what inspired me was I wanted to find a convenient and easy way for people to be able to purchase masks without having to go out of their way and find them. Uh, right now, uh, during the pandemic, I'm sure you know when masks were at low supply, uh, it was very hard to find a nice mask. You know, you could just maybe find the disposable, disposable ones at the store, but finding a nice reusable mask or even an N95 was just very difficult. So I thought, you know, I want to make a, a, a vending machine where people can have access to all types of masks and not have, you know, any problems choosing which mask they want and have a variety to choose from. So I figured this would be a great solution to a lot of people's problems with finding masks or Sometimes people forget their mask and need to buy one, and this way they don't have to go out of their way. It's on their way, and they just walk by it, and they can just purchase a mask if they would like to. As mentioned, this new vending machine of yours can be found at the Waterfront Skytrain station, and I got to believe that you did this strategically because that station, it's one of the busiest in Vancouver, so you know right away that a lot of people are going to be walking by that unit. Well, yes, I'm very thankful I was able to uh, get that location and be at Waterfront Station as it is one of the busiest uh, stations in the province. Uh, And also, I have another location that will be opening up on Saturday at Pacific Center as well. So it's going to be in the mall as well. So it's going to be convenient for people shopping around if they need a new mask or, you know, maybe forgot their mask or just want to try something new. It's going to be available for them there as well. Since we're living in the middle of a pandemic, uh, what are the payment options like? Because I'll tell you right now, personally, I don't even carry cash or coins around with me anymore. Well, that's the most important thing. When I put this machine together, I decided to make it cashless. Uh, I didn't want people to pay with cash just because of the pandemic. I wanted to make it easy and convenient for them. So it accepts iPhone, Android, any tap service that you have and your debit or credit card. So what are the prices like for all of these products in your PPE vending machines? Because I got to imagine, you know, they have to be cheap enough to be interesting for the consumer, but high enough to cover your own business cost. Oh, they're very, they're very good prices. Uh, you know, they're, the prices right now, you know, you can get a reusable mask for about twelve fifty, dollars N95 mask for about six fifty. dollars um, you know, disposable masks for $2. We sell hand sanitizers as well, uh, face shields. Um, you know, we've got Hello Kitty masks, 
you know, for people or for kids if they would want any of those. So we've just got a variety of things to choose from, and there's lots of options, and, you know, the, the prices are very reasonable. You mentioned you have the one location at Waterfront. You're going to have a new one on Saturday that people can find at Pacific Center, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, assuming this continues to be a hit, do you have plans to expand any further? Well, that, that's a great question. I, I, I am looking to expand. You know, uh, I'll be very honest, a couple of malls have declined me. I'm not going to mention any names, uh, which I'm very confused with, right, because I feel like this is a need for every mall. Every mall should have this because, you know, people want these machines people want to have access to buy masks and this is the most easiest and convenient way for people to do it so i've had a lot of feedback people walking by the station a lot of people want it in different uh, stations that with uh, with translink so you know i'm gonna to have to see what i can do about that then a lot of people want it in different malls so it's just more so about seeing who wants to put it in a mall and who wants to have masks for people to buy that is perplexing that malls have actually refused to have this in their building when you consider this is exactly uh, what people need more of, access to affordable, personal, protective equipment. Yeah, it, it really makes no sense to me. It's very confusing as to why, uh, you know, some malls have declined me, but, you know, hopefully they change their mind and see, you know, this is the future. Uh, masks are going to be around for the next two years, even with the vaccine after out. Uh, experts are saying masks are still going to be around until, you know, 2022, 2023. So, you know, this is not going away anytime soon. And people just always need a, a mask or even hand sanitizer, just PPE products in general. So this is just the most convenient way. It's the first one in British Columbia. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's a great idea. It's amazing for people to be able to purchase anything they want at any time they want. Now, I think all of this is just such a great idea, the fact that you're using a vending machine uh, to just take away the human interaction when people need to go and get themselves some PPE. So what has the reaction been like from people who have maybe come across the vending machine so far? Because if it were me, and I haven't had a chance to go down to Waterfront lately, but if it were me, I'd be all over this thing. Yes, uh, everybody who has walked by loves the machine. They've never seen anything like it before. At first, you know, they walk by and they're kind of shocked. They think a glimpse of like, oh, my God, what is this? And then they see it's a vending machine with masks and hand sanitizers. So they stop by, take pictures, people buy products because it's something new to them. They've never seen it before. As I mentioned, it's the first of a, a kind in D.C. Nobody else has done this. So a lot of people love it. And a lot of people are saying, like, as I mentioned, they want it in different locations just so it's more convenient for them as well. So. That's why I'm trying to expand and see what other locations want to do business with me so we can get these machines set up and get business going for them. All right. He is Edvin Muminovich. He is an entrepreneur and the owner of the PPE vending machine that you can find at Waterfront Skytrain Station and soon at Pacific Center. Edvin, thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you for your time, sir. I appreciate the call. And that is our show contributor, John Jang. Let's take a short break. When we come back, a lot of people have been calling, talking about their experiences, their memories, more uh, appropriately, of writing letters to Santa. Wanted to know about that after we heard a story out of New Hampshire of a young girl who all she wanted was the address of her best friend who moved away. Hoped that Santa would help her out with that. And boy, did he deliver. I'll share some of your other responses and your thoughts on some of the other topics of the day as well when we return. Stay with us. Good afternoon. Watch out for a stalled truck at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, southbound at Midspan in the right lane. Traffic is starting to line up on the approach. There's a stall in Abbotsford on Highway 1 westbound after the Bradner Rest area, mostly off to the right shoulder. And big delays for hydro work in North Vancouver today. Traffic lights are out at Mount Seymour Parkway and Riverside Drive with flaggers on scene. Show your support for BC's frontline workers. Visit makeitpublic.ca to find out how. A message from the Hospital Employees Union. In the AM730 Traffic Center, I'm Trish Jewison.